Good morning. That was quiet. <laughs> I was really quiet. Is it good morning? Everybody's okay? <clears throat> so I'm uh, glad, glad you're here. My name is Lance. I'm the, I'm the campus pastor here at Midtown, and uh, I, I'm really thankful. I'm so glad that you're here. Uh, I want to I wanna really mention um, what, what gratitude I have uh, when we gather together as a church. And one of the main reasons is because uh, I believe, I believe Scripture when it says that God opposes the proud, he opposes the proud, he gives grace to the humble. And I so desperately need grace that I, I want to walk in humility. And uh, I know that one of the fastest ways to get to that humility is to be authentically grateful, to be thankful for things. And uh, I'm, so, I'm so happy. I've been, I feel like it's a gift to be able to think about these mornings, to think that so many of you set aside time with, uh, with your work or with play or recreation or with shopping, let's be honest, with coffee or whatever you were doing this morning, right? And you came to, you came to worship as the, as the people of God together. And it's, that's an amazing thing. It's something that I'm, I'm grateful for. And it is, it's good for me. It's good for me to, uh, to stir that in. I, I think it's very, very difficult to be authentically grateful and proud at the same time. I think that's just, uh, I think that's the way that we're function. And I, I guess even I say that, that's maybe that's false, right? There's that guy in scripture who's like, God, thank you that I'm not like other people. <laughs> thank you. I'm so awesome that I guess you could be proud and do that. Um, but all that to say, I'm humbled. I'm so grateful that you're here. We're going to turn in the word of God to Acts chapter 16. Uh, so if you have a Bible, I would love for you to follow along and read with me. Uh, let's participate together. If you need a Bible, there should be a black one right in front of you in the row there. You can feel free to take that uh, when you leave and when you go. We're going to read starting in Acts chapter 16, uh, Acts 16, 16, basically all the way up through 17, 15. So it's going to be a big chunk of text. Uh, And let me just describe to you sort of the reasoning or the idea behind where we're going in Scripture uh, scripture today. This is going to be the second sermon in the, in the second missionary journey of Paul. We've been walking through Acts. Last week, uh, Pastor Josh showed us the origin, the beginning, and actually got off to kind of a rocky beginning. There was some dissension, division over John Mark. Uh, but the beginning of the second missionary journey of the Apostle Paul, right? And so he, he had sort of the introduction to what that looked like. And from Acts 15.36 all the way up to 18.22, so as you're flipping through your Bible, that section encompasses the totality of this one journey that the Apostle Paul takes. The journey, the journey that he takes to plant churches, to preach the Word of God. And it's a significant section of the book of Acts. What I want to do today, this will be the second sermon, is I want to give a bit of an overview to characterize what that journey looked like. So I'm going to read a big chunk of it. And then next week we're going to come back and we're going to pull out just one particular instance when Paul preaches in Athens because I think it's very instructive uh, for us, the way that he encounters culture and preaches Jesus into it. So what we're doing today is we're going to try to get a big picture overview. This is the second missionary journey. This is Acts sixteen sixteen up through seventeen fifteen. I'd love it if you would uh, you'd follow along as I read. This is God's word to us. It's for our benefit. It's been given to enlighten our minds, to soften our hearts, so that we might have faith. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, 
I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. When they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. But when it was day, the magistrates sent the police saying, Let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, The magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No, let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia, and when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis, and that's a hard word, and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. Some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous And taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. When they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they had arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. 
Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. And those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. Let me take a second and pray. Father, we've, we've just read a lengthy account of a journey that took place a couple thousand years ago in a land much different than ours, led by someone who culturally, ethnically, and even according to his religious upbringing was very, very different than us. And yet we linger here. We read here. We consider these words because we know that you've spoken to us in them. This is the very... Word of God. And Father, we're grateful for that. Thank you that you've not stayed hidden, stayed far off. Thank you that you care for us intimately. Thank you that you want to speak. Your voice has gone out and it has been heard. I pray that as we consider these words and this journey, that you'd help us. God, we're needy. We are looking into these words with minds and hearts eyes that are often distracted and hardened. We've grown dim. We confess to you an apathy concerning these things oftentimes. We long for an eagerness, a delight, a cherishing of these words. God, would you remind us of the wonder that it is, the majestic creator, other God has spoken You've condescended to us. I pray that as we consider these things, you'd keep us from falsehood. We want to see more of you. We want to delight in you in a deeper way. We pray that you'd work that in us by your Holy Spirit. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. This is a, a lengthy section of Scripture. I don't know about you, but we've gotten to the point, right, where anything that happens to Paul and his traveling companions is sort of just like, Oh, of course, right? Like, sure. I mean, admit it, right? You just read this and you heard about singing at midnight and jail cells and earthquakes and people coming and saying, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And you just, gla- it just your eyes were sort of glossed over a little bit maybe, right? Yeah, this sounds about right. It's like a friend that I had one time. He works with my brother at a, at a church in Phoenix and he was telling me about his life and it seemed like every five minutes he just said something more amazing and crazy. And so at a certain point, I thought, like, this guy is either trolling me so hard, like, he's just making all this up, or he's just magnificent. And I remember at one point, he said, he just in passing, yeah, then I lived for like eight months with some buddies on a beach in Costa Rica. We didn't have a house, but it was just awesome. We just surfed all day. And then he just went on with the story. And I realized that I just didn't even phase me, like, oh, yeah, of course, journey telling story man, right? Um, <clears throat> I probably didn't even know what I was being sort of like pulled into his, into his web, right? had a little man crush on him at the time. Um, This is the kind of story that we're diving into. 
There's amazing stories of, of purple goods selling leading merchant women and slave girl divination telling demon-possessed conversions and jailers who have people in prison and they, they fail at their job, right? Right in the midst of Paul singing and them going and proclaiming, you kind of feel bad for jailer guy. He's like almost an internet meme. He's about to kill himself because he's like, you had one job, right? He's you had one job guy. Keep the prisoners in prison. He wakes up and they're gone. He's just thinking to himself like, oh, really? You did this, right? Had one job, bro. And so in the midst of the story, we can get lost, right? We can get lost in all of the details of Paul's just an amazing life that he's living. He puts himself on edge. And when you do that, things go crazy. So to simplify, hopefully to simplify, there's a lot of things that we could go through in this particular text and pull them out. To simplify a little bit, I want to focus on, on three words. Three words that are going to characterize some of what we're reading here and I think become sort of uh, telltale signs, characteristics of the journey, right? These are the, this is the Facebook album title for the pictures that are in the, you know what I mean? Does anybody do that anymore? You guys are all like, Instagram so much better. So whatever, whatever it is that you title, this is hashtag missionary journey adventures, right? And these are the words that you might put on them. Word, right? So the word of God. I want us to note the way that Paul was ruthlessly, almost just unbel- just like a completely obsessed with speaking Jesus. So word is going to be one of the things that we see as characteristic. The second thing we're going to see, and this is kind of a fancy churchy word, and don't get put off by it, sacrament. Okay, so sacraments. And I know that in different religious traditions, that word means something different. I'm going to hone in on the idea that baptism becomes a central part of the missionary work of Paul and his companions, right? That's just something they do every day, every day. They're out there, they're just preaching word, right? And then they're baptizing folks. And we're going to see that word, sacraments. And then the last thing that we want to see from this is the idea of conversion. Conversion. Here's the amazing part that we're going to see throughout this entire thing. Paul goes out in shipwrecks, and being beaten with rods, and being thrown in prison, and the entirety of his plan is here's what we're going to do. We're going to talk about Jesus, an obscure guy from Nazareth who died at least 20 years ago. We're going to talk about him a lot, and then people are going to be converted. We're going to win through this. We're going to see that this this journey is full of surprising conversions. We're going to think about what that looks like, what that means. So I want to mention to you the first place. I'm just going to walk through a bunch of of scripture passages on the place of the word, words, speaking. Before we dive through here and look at all the places that it's in there, I want you to just consider for a fact that you are a Christian based on your confession of a particular set of truths. Now, I'm grateful that God is a God over all of our emotions. I believe that we can commune with him. I believe that in your life, I hope that you've been convicted over sin and then met grace and freedom and rest in Jesus so that you maybe even wept and cried out, Abba, Father. I'm grateful that Christianity can be about community. You have friends in here. Some of you network in here. helps business-wise. There's burden sharing that happens here. There's parenting that can happen because of the people around here, the way we raise our kids together. All those things are great, but at its core, 
Christianity is about what you do and what you believe about Jesus Christ. It is about words. Jesus is the Son of God. You add one word to that, it is no longer Christian. Jesus is not the Son of God. We are concerned with assertions. What do we believe about Jesus? So I just want us to consider that and think about that as we look in and see what Paul's commitment was in this journey. First place we're going to look, it's actually right before we started reading, verse 6 of Acts chapter 16. Go ahead and, and look there. I want you to note what the Holy Spirit forbid them from doing. They wanted to go through these regions. They wanted to go to Asia. It says that they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to do what? To speak the word. Paul's burning passion was to speak the word. That's what he's praying. He's praying, Holy Spirit, bring me to a place I will speak. Holy Spirit, open a door. I'm going to bring words to that door. That's where I'm going to go. They were forbidden from doing it. Just a few verses down, verse 10 of Acts chapter 16. A vision comes to them. They decide instead of going to Asia, they should go to Macedonia. That's one of the major parts of this particular journey. This area of the world at that time known as Macedonia is what's reached. What do they conclude? It says, concluding that God had called us to preach, to speak, to proclaim the gospel to them. So verse 6, verse 10 of Acts chapter 16, same thing. Then what do they do when they show up in Philippi, a leading city in Macedonia, an influential place in verse 13? It says, with Lydia at this place of prayer, there's a bunch of women there actually, it says they sat down and they spoke. They opened their mouths. They sat down and they spoke. And in verse 14, in in describing the conversion of Lydia, what does it look like for someone to become a Christian? It means she wrestled with the words. She reckoned them. She said, it matters what I believe about these things that you're saying. I'm hearing you and I am considering. It says the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said. To what was said said. Verse 32 with this jailer, the jailer who, who failed and in failing found, found life. What does it say in verse 32 that they were doing for this jailer? He says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? In verse 32, they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who are in his house. This speaking of the word to him and his house. We'll come on that later. We talk about baptism. But what must he do to be saved? What does Paul do? Teaches words. He speaks to them words. Chapter 17, just over. And I know that by the end of this, you're going to have whiplash a little bit. And we just keep flipping through. Uh, we want to be like those who were more noble. We're going to be like eagerly examining. We're examining here. Verse 2 of Acts chapter 17. This gives us even more of an understanding of what Paul was about. It says that he went in as was his custom. And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures. He spoke words about the words of God. He's reasoning with them from scripture. This is his whole plan. There's no tour bus. There's no pyrotechnics. There's no zip line. There's no petting zoo. He shows up in a city. He opens the words of God and he speaks to them. This is his whole plan. Verse 11, describing what these Bereans were like. What were they like? Why were they more noble? 
says they were more noble than those in Thessalonica. It's a slam on the Jews in Thessalonica, right? Poor Thessalonicans. What happened? Why were they more noble? They were more noble because of the way they received the word, the way they considered the words of God. It says that they received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Just a couple more, and we're going to come back here. In verse 13, because of their eagerness, the Jews from Thessalonica were upset. They were upset that Paul had been proclaiming the word of God. The word of God was proclaimed. And then just two more from Acts chapter 18 at the beginning. Verse 5, when Silas and Timothy arrived in Macedonia, right? So they've been separated for a little while. Paul got taken out because he was, he was basically, uh, he was basically being sort of like accosted at different times. He couldn't keep track of when he was out of prison. They're getting separated at different places. And it says that he's on ahead in Macedonia. Silas and Timothy show up. And what is Paul doing in verse 5 of Acts 18? He's occupied with the word. He did not dabble in these things. They were very life to him. They show up. Hey, how do we find Paul in a leading city with all this craziness sort of stuff? Well, where, where are they talking about Scripture? Where are they teaching the Word? Then that's pretty much where Paul's going to be. That's his whole plan. Last verse, verse 11 of Acts 18. What did he do when he stayed <clears throat> with the Corinthians for a year and a half? It says he stayed a year and six months what did he do? Teaching the word of God among them. If the concept of word-centeredness in the second missionary journey were a horse, I would be beating it mercilessly right now. Would I not? Have we beat it? It's just like over and over and over again. You cannot look through this journey without thinking Scripture, words, speaking, concerning Jesus. This was his method. It brings to mind, he stayed a year and a half in Corinth, right? And how does he open his letter to the Corinthians later? He says, when I came among you, I determined to know among you nothing but Christ and him crucified. Other people come with all kinds of craziness. What does he say? We came preaching Christ and him crucified. Preaching. This was his commitment. And I want to say to you a couple of things. This missionary journey commends to us not only preaching from the leaders of the church, but a participation on the part of the church itself. There's a couple of things that I want to point out. This Berean passage is amazing, of course. There's a few things that are interesting. The first one is that in Acts 17, 11, it says that they received the word with eagerness. Can I just confess to you this is one of the biggest challenges of the Christian life? We believe amazing, astounding, life-shattering things. You know that? You know that we believe that the center of all being and power and glory and majesty in the world, the kind of God who can just open his mouth and from a simple word create a universe, a universe that's taken us hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years and room-sized telescopes, we cannot see the end of it. Believe that that God has given us a book. We believe that these words are a letter of love and inclusion and grace to us. And I confess how easy it is for us to just sleepwalk through this whole show. <sighs> I once was dead, now I'm alive, right? 
Under the eternal wrath of God, now I'm free. Bible study again. We have made a drudgery of the life-giving voice of God. If I set up a box in a room somewhere in the bowels of FSU and gave out secret passwords and charged $1,000 to hear God's voice, people would come and pay money day after day after day after day. Christian, you believe that God's voice is for you and with you every single morning on your bookshelf. They came with an eagerness to this. They had a joy can you confess, is there, has there been a time when you were more eager of the things of God than you are now? I completely believe that's true of me. To my shame, oftentimes, I have been more eager in the past than I am now. When I preach every single week, it's something I pray. I pray that you get spun out of this room, that we stir up a, a liveliness in you. You feast so intensely here in this room that you think to yourself, like, I want more food. If the entirety of your biblical experience and your commitment to the word, your eagerness is like, oh yeah, that guy at the church, he told me this on Sunday, then you will not be sustained in the kind of eagerness that the word of God deserves. You really won't. You just absolutely won't. Tuesday morning when you're fretting and you're in pain and you're needing a word from God. You cannot say to yourself like, oh, I remember the good words from God. Where were they? Where? Oh, they're on the screen at Midtown. That's where, that's where they are. We can't, we're not gonna, we can't, I love putting the words on the screen. We can't send the screen with you, but you have the words of God. You have the word of God. There needs to be a heart condition of eagerness, right? I think it's one question you can ask yourself. How and is it even possible for you to prepare your heart so that you bring an eagerness to the study of the Word of God, either personally or when you're engaged as a church together like this learning? What does eagerness look like for you? I'm pretty sure you know what eagerness looks like, right? What are you eager about right now? I know there's got to be something. Downton's back on. Say what? Right? Like, we were just so waiting. Couldn't wait, Right? And some of you guys are smug right now, like, oh yeah, TV shows, Downton. And you're like, refresh on Twitter. Which 17-year-old kid's going to come play football? Right? Like, I'm eager. National Signing Day. Your heart is designed to be moved by things. You know that? It's designed to be moved by things. You have eagerness. You know what eagerness looks like. The problem is we come to the pages of Scripture, and through complete familiarity, distraction, sin, hard-heartedness, lack of time, just a million different reasons. A million different reasons. We don't, have, we don't have a desire for the word like we ought. And more than that, I think some of the reasons we don't have eagerness is because it does take a little bit of work, right? They're examining the scriptures to see if these things were so. I remember when I was 17 years old, I started to become convicted over sin like I had never been previously in my life. I think one of the ways that God begins to work in the life of anyone is he shows them how destitute they are. I had moments of confession and moments of shame over my sin where I was dry heaving on the, on the, in the carpet, basically, of my bedroom. And one of the ways that I know this is an authentic work of the Holy Spirit is because I was drawn not back to an emotional experience, not to shame, not to disdain or discouragement. I was drawn back to the Word of God. And I became convicted over the fact that I was a Sunday school kid. I grew up in church. My mom has pictures to prove that I was there, right? 
I was the three-year-old kid in the, like, the play for Christmas. My mom helped make the sheep costume suits, and I had, like, the black nose on and face paint. That's, like, the most, it was the most girly any man has ever worn face paint. It was me being a sheep in the play, right? I had all this experience in church, and I knew the stories, but there I was, a 17-year-old kid convicted over my sin, searching for God, and I realized that I had an entirely second-hand religious experience. I had had up to that point almost an entirely second-hand religious experience. I had not read with intentionality, examining and eagerness. I had not read my Bible. I really had not. It was embarrassing. I'd been trying to be active in evangelism for a bunch of months and years before that. And I just became convicted over the fact that, like, you don't even have the desire or the energy to read it for yourself. And you're begging God for him to use your words to other people. So I sat in my room. I looked through. I had this study Bible that actually I had it when I was 12. And the first, like, six chapters I had highlighted completely in blue. I was bored in church. It was one of those, those Bibles, right? And I looked through, and it, it, tell, it told you about the books of the Bible. And there's one called First Timothy. It said, this is from Paul, an older life in ministry, writing to a young man who's thinking about pastoral work, right? And right then and there, I decided and determined, for the next year, I'm just going to read my Bible. I just read it, First Timothy, start to finish. The next day, I just thought like, oh, so there's a second one of these. <laughs> there's a second Timothy. I think I'll just do that. And I cannot describe to you the kind of assurance and confidence, the kind of freedom that, ca- that came with me examining and finding God in Scripture myself, not from some other person's, taking some other person's word for it. It's how you're designed to meet God in His Word. I want to mention a, a caution here. There are some people who believe that these passages are an invitation to cynicism, to bring with you a heart of suspicion. So you come to church and you think like, okay, pastor, you go ahead and teach, but I'm going to be examining, right? Like, put your tinfoil hat on. And you're all like, uh, you and your truther club, right? They never landed on Mars, and this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. Those are the only things I know for sure. Didn't land on Mars, the moon, right? Didn't land on the moon, and this guy doesn't know what he's talking This is not an invitation to cynicism or suspicion, and for sure, as you grow in your knowledge of Scripture, it's not an invitation to criticism. One of the downfalls, the things that I felt like I really learned through, is it was hard for me to be edified for a while when I started reading my Bible consistently. I'd go to church, and I was the most critical human on the planet. Well, he really should have emphasized grace more than mercy. If he knows the terms, I mean, if you think about Ephesians 1, right? Anybody been that person? It's so easy to be that person. This is not an invitation to being critical, but it is an invitation to participating and to honesty in your own soul. At the end of the day, you will stand before God with your conscience on what you did with the Word of God. The person of God, the living Word, Jesus, and the words that we have of Him here in Scripture. And you need to be able to stand with a clear conscience before God, that you examine these things to see if they're so. People used to ask me all the time, how do I know what church I should go to? Where should I be? What, what should that look like? Without fail. I mean, I would ask them, like, what's your background? What do you enjoy? What are your preferences? All that stuff makes sense. That's fine. But the fundamental sin qua non, without which there is no question to be asked, right? The fundamental one is, how do they deal with the Word of God? You need to week after week come and read 
the Bible, day after day, even be reading your Bible and come, and you should just ask this one simple question. Are they doing their best to be honest with the text? Are they doing their best to come to it not with their own opinions, their own agendas? Because everyone has them, right? I have things that stir me up. I've got soapboxes for days, right? Hobby horses that are well-fed stallions, right? We could jump on those things and go a long way. We need to ask ourselves, do we come to the Bible and are we honest with what it says? Are we attempting to live underneath the authority of this, not alongside or above? That's the question. Paul was committed to preaching. The people were committed to hearing the word. It's a definitive, absolute statement. It's a must, it's a must be. The last thing I want to say about it is I think you should be fearful of something. I don't want you to be fearful that you'll be led astray. I think God sustains us, of course. We need to be aware, not naive, but I think you should be fearful at a certain point. You should be fearful of living, you should be fearful of living a life on, on secondhand knowledge, of hearsay. Of why are you clinging to Jesus? Well, because some people I like said so. I think you should be fearful of having your entire your entire relationship with God be based around vague feelings that you can't really nail down. What has Jesus done for you? I, some stuff, some good stuff, right? I think we need to be careful about the tendency that we all have to let this moment be the only time we read the Bible or consider it. This will not sustain you. My goal is to preach in such a way that you get a desire and a hunger for it and you want more. I'm just going to use a terrible drug addict analogy. Like, uh, we want the best stuff, right? So that you, like, you want more. That's what, I, that's what we're after. We, we want you to want more when you leave this place. Second point, that's word. I could go on for a long, long time. That's word. I want you to note the commitment to baptism that Paul had. The early church had a commitment to baptism. And that's a little bit weird. It's a religious exercise, right? We're all for symbolism in almost every other part of the world, but people are skeptical of religious symbolism often. They think that it's just sort of like made up. Why are you doing this? None of it matters. Those same people will like, will throw toilet paper on trees and like chop their arms and like all kinds of symbolism in other areas of life. This is one of those things that God has given. It's a means of grace for his church. It is an acted out word. The the missionary journey by some scholars has been described as this. It's been a proclaiming of Jesus through declaration and drama. There's a drama. There's a living picture that happens in baptism of confession, communion with Christ, and they are committed to it. If you're unfamiliar with baptism or if you're wrestling with it, you're not sure where to to go with it, let me just say a couple of things about it. One, baptism shows up in the New Testament. This guy named John the Baptist, he's a weirdo from the wilderness who comes and he's preaching repent and he's bringing people down into a river and he's dunking them, right? And you might think to yourself like, well, what do we make of this? The reason that we take baptism so seriously first and foremost is because when Jesus came upon this guy, the weirdo in the wilderness, calling people down into a river, Jesus did not say to him, get out of here you crazy, insert, insert insult word there, right? Like, he didn't say, get out of here. What did Jesus do? He submitted to baptism. 
Jesus actually came and said, yes, this symbolism, this drama of going underwater and being united with Christ, this is something that we want to pass on. This is a rite of initiation in some sense. It's a rite of sealing in another sense. It's a sign of what God has done in the inward heart of someone who has repented and placed their faith in Jesus. So John the Baptist preaches it. Jesus, Jesus submits to it. And then near the end of his life, we find Jesus giving command, the Great Commission, He says one of the things we should do is to go into all the world baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's a command that's given to the disciples. something that we ought to be about. At Pentecost, in the beginning of the book of Acts, we find that Peter goes out, he preaches the gospel, and the Holy Spirit falls. It says 3,000 believed were baptized and saved. His message, repent and be baptized. And then all throughout these missionary journeys... This is all they did all the time. I'm going to preach Jesus, and then I'm going to get some people wet. That's 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 the ministry. We see it happening all the time. I want to commend this idea that you should be wrestling with baptism. There's a sense in which this is a grace to you to consider and to proclaim and to declare what God has done. I believe that God meets those who are setting themselves apart proclaiming Jesus as Lord. I believe there's a consecration even that happens in baptism. And if you've not been baptized, you're not sure about it, I think you ought to look into it. You ought to pray and say, God, what's holding me back? Or who should I talk to about this? This is a regular practice of the church. I want to make one mention of one more thing. I just made a huge speech about being honest with what the Bible says, right? And not not committing fallacies where, you know, scholarly nerdy people call it two different things. We want to be exegetical. Exegesis is the idea is we let the word speak for itself. We take out of it only what we want. Eisegesis is the idea that we bring our own ideas. We try to cram them down into the text, right? You've probably heard that before. I'm going to read a Bible verse now. Now that I got that out of the way, I'm just going to dive off into my own opinions for a while. And in order to to be honest with that exact thing, I want to mention that these chapters have become over the years a major defining mark for how people deal with who should be baptized. When should they be baptized? How should they be baptized? Three different times. Did you notice it? Lydia's family at the beginning of Acts chapter 16. The jailer's family at the end of Acts chapter 16. And then also in the beginning of Acts chapter 18, Crispus, it seems like believing in the Lord together with his household. This word household keeps coming up. I just want to make a couple of comments. We don't have the hours long that it would take to walk through all of the different opinions on this particular aspect. I want to say with certainty that there is a kind of belief about household baptism that we must, I think, reject wholeheartedly. And that's this idea. The idea that somehow by baptizing an infant, that they have all of their sins washed away and they are saved in that act. I think we have to definitively say that that is a doctrine that the Bible, it's, it's anathema to the Bible. Without belief in repentance, right? There's no guarantee of cleansing or salvation. But I also want to say that sometimes we encounter Christians who practice baptism in a different way than us, and we can be very quick to sort of just say like, that's ridiculous, you guys are stupid, you're wrong. What are you, just religious? That sort of thing. And we don't, we're not careful to listen. And there are people, some of whom we actually give out their book at the end of the service, right, who would practice baptism differently than us. 
And they do not believe that by baptizing an infant that it's like an automatic salvation thing at all. It has a lot to do with the visible church, entrance into a community of faith. But everywhere, even faithful, awesome Presbyterians who we love and the churches that I've served at in the past would say that the only standing and assurance and ground we have in Christ is to repent and believe in the gospel. And that is where salvation comes. All that to say, I will fully admit to you, as a pastor of a church that we think that it's uh, the, the best practice, it's healthy for our church, we practice and preach believers' baptism only. What we mean by that is we want to, we want to hear a profession of faith in Jesus before we baptize someone. It would be a lot easier for me to make my argument if these passages were not in Scripture, right? If I had not read these and someone couldn't say to me, but wait a minute, what about the household? It doesn't say how old the people were. It doesn't even say that they professed. It was mostly about the the person who led the household. It would be a lot easier if these passages were not here. What I want to say is twofold. One, I think we need to be gracious when we encounter people who have a different practice than us. We need to want to read the best of their proponents of the doctrine, not the straw men that the best of ours put up, right? And the second thing is, is that even in the face of household baptisms like this, I think we can, we can deduce a couple of things. One, it's true that God graciously, lovingly, I believe that he actually bestows grace in unique and special ways through a family. The influence that a mom and dad have on their children is astounding. I believe that it's normal and right and good for parents to pray and offer their children to God and and believe in faith that through their preaching that Jesus will save them. And in some measure, we should rejoice over this, not scratch our heads and say, like, I wish this wasn't a theological conundrum, right? We ought to rejoice over this, that God works beautifully through families, all the way from the Old Testament, right? This promise to you and to your children, Deuteronomy 6, everywhere you go, by the wayside and on the road, right? Speak the gospel to your kids. It's the most powerful evangelistic tool on the face of the earth is a healthy, stable, God-fearing family. We ought to rejoice in that. But I also believe that even in the midst of this text, the emphasis is on the hearing of the word of God and the believing. That's what the jailer rejoiced over. That's what Lydia did. She received. Her heart was open to it. The emphasis and the rejoicing comes after hearing the word, believing, repenting, and then being baptized. And we should not take passages where it's sort of unclear and we're not really sure what's going on and create a whole system around it. I think what it should do is it should drive us to the rest of the New Testament. And in the rest of the New Testament, I really firmly believe that the beautiful practice of communion and union with Jesus, as shown in in immersive baptism, gives gives us a place where we practice as a church at Four Oaks. At the end of the day, we don't want to be ungracious. We don't want to be unthinking or naive. We want to understand that God has done good things and continues to do good things through churches and men who believe differently on this issue. It's one of the reasons that we don't make this a sticking point for being a member of our church. If you come in a clear conscience and say, I believe and deduce differently from the text, and we say, do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? And do you have fruit of grace in your life? then we rejoice and want you to be a part of this body. All it to say, baptism is a major part of the second missionary journey. The last thing, and this is 
wrapping us up. I want you to know that there is no Christianity apart from conversion. Full on, I once was this, I heard the word of God, and now I am this. In this text, it seems like Luke is sort of doing a special thing. He's kind of playing with us to show just how unbelievably committed God is to surprising conversions. He takes the weak things of the world to shame the wise. He is not content. God is not content to love and to bestow grace just on a narrow band of Jewish people. Did you consider when we read through it, did you think about all the different kinds of conversions, all the different kinds of people? In Acts chapter 16, 11 through 15, we get the conversion of a successful, probably single merchant woman named Lydia. Successful, independent, making money on her own. Just a few verses later, we have a young girl exactly on the opposite side of this station of life. She's being used. She's in subservient relationship to men who would use this demon possession that she has to make money off of her. And in the midst of this, Paul speaks and she's delivered from this condition. Very, very different stages of life. Very, very different conditions. Then right following that, we turn and we have this rough, gruff, right? Roman, probably Roman guard who hears the word of the Lord and is converted. We've got Lydia, merchant, seller of purple goods, slave girl, demon possessed, and rough, tough jailer dude. What do they all have in common, right? This is, the, this is like the setup to a bad joke, right? And yet this is the grace of God. Because they do not merit it, they all are welcomed, and Jesus gives righteousness to them all. We're not even done yet. The beginning of chapter 17, we find him going and he's preaching to devout Greeks. And of these devout Greeks, it says not a few of the leading women. We have everyone from destitute, demon-possessed, used young girl to elite, influential, probably woman of politics and devout Greek coming to Christ. In verses 10 to 12, we find out that the rich people, the rich Greeks, come to Jesus. At the end of Acts chapter 17, we find that pagan idol-worshiping, agnostic, spiritual people come to know Jesus. And then in Acts chapter 18, a synagogue ruler, a Jewish, religious, religious, buttoned-up, have-it-all-together leader of worship comes to know Jesus. I think in a very outward sort of way, Luke is, is crying out to us to show us This is the kind of love that a father has for his own. Jesus saves all kinds of people in all kinds of places from all kinds of conditions. And this ought to remind us. Remember how I said to you one of the hard things in Christian life is to remain eager about the word of God? I think in the same way, we can read stories like this and we can say, oh wow, what a surprising conversion. And all the while, without knowing it, we're speaking a very dangerous word to our own souls, and that's basically this. It's not a surprising thing that I'm converted. Every single moment of your life that you confess not yourself as Lord, but Jesus as Lord, every single moment of courage that you confess, God, I was wrong, I sinned, and I need you, every moment of faith 
Every hour of singing and praise is an unbelievably surprising, gracious, mercy-filled gift from God. None of us have any hope. If you are believing this lie, yeah, I know I'm a Christian, but I mean, it kind of makes sense, right? I'm just kind of a good person. So if you are coming to God in a sort of like, God, I know you, you probably, you're probably kind of happy to have me, right? probably happy to have i mean those other people wow you had to take this girl out of like this she had to intervene when she was possessed but not me i mean i'm a pretty good person right the longer you hold on to that lie the further you are are from the kind of awe that will inspire the worship that you need to sustain your christian life every single conversion is a surprising one you know that for two thousand years god has sustained the church and can you imagine the moments of faith and crisis of doubt and discouragement that could have derailed you being here right now? Can you think of the heritage, the legacy, the number of generations of the Word of God being faithfully preserved and preached so that you could be here and worship on a Sunday morning, end of February 2015? All of it is surprising. And I think that Luke makes it evident in these crazy stories, but I think we ought to see it in our own stories as well. And if you need some help wondering that God's been merciful to you, just keep track of your sin for a while this week. Be bold enough to confess it. My guess is by the end of the week, you'll be astounded that Jesus says, my righteousness is yours. You'll be astounded that God looks down at you and says, I love you the same way I love my son. I love you as a daughter. That will be amazing to you. Let me pray for you before we come to communion. God, thank you for your word. We have been encouraged by it today. We've been blessed by it. We know that it is life.